Hi, everyone, and welcome to Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, the show that takes you on a deep dive into the happenings of the hospitality industry. Now, sometimes there's a focus on culture, and sometimes there's a focus on travel trends. Sometimes there's a focus on personal projects, but it all comes back to the industry. And here we are back at the beautiful private wine club, The Wine Lair, in downtown DC, adjacent to the Ritz Carlton Hotel. I'm so excited to now be doing industry night here for the second week and for the long term, hopefully. Uh, now, for those of you who knew, are new to me, welcome and a little bit of background on me. I've been covering the food, wine, and hospitality scene for the last 20 years through a variety of outlets print, online, TV, radio, podcast, and social. If you live in D.C., uh, you're familiar with the list areyouonit.com, the online e-zine that tells you everything that's happening in the D.C. restaurant industry, including restaurant openings and events and all the yummy things you want to be doing. Um, of course, you tune in every Sunday to 1500 for Foodie and the Beast. That is the radio show that I've been doing for the last 14 years uh, with my husband, David, the only food and wine variety show in the D.C. market. Uh, and of course, you follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Well, at least Twitter for now, um, for all the other happenings and fun things I'm doing around town. So how much fun has this past week been? It has been insanely delicious and so fun. So I'm going to take you on a quick tour on some of it, because if I told you about all of it, I would never get to my guests. So Salton Sentry celebrated 10 years at Union Market. Amanda McClemens, a good friend, and her Cali boho style. We all toasted her and all of her fabulous glassware and fashionware and amazing things that she carries at her store. So congratulations to her. Uh, while at Union Market, we went to Yasmin. So this just opened up. You know these guys, Gerald Addison, Chris Morgan, and their close friend, Saeed Haddad. So Chris and Gerald um, and Saeed were all together at Maidan. They got their Michelin star there. And now they've opened up uh, this Lebanese-inspired Yasmin. They're calling it a kebab shop. I put that shop in quotes because it's not a kebab shop. It's like amazing food. They have a Lebanese wine list. I thought everything they were doing there was spot on. There's a reason why they won their star. And uh, I can't wait to see what else happens for them. Now, this weekend, the Four Seasons and Michael Mina launched DC's first Georgetown Wine and Dine. It was an entire weekend with chefs from all over the country. Michael Mina was obviously here. So was my boy Adam Sobel, Robert Curtis, Kyle Connaughton, Michael Rafiti. The Vitaggio boys caused no trouble, but they were certainly here. Um, and it, amazing wines from winemakers like Hill and Chateau du Tour and Screaming Eagle. I mean... It's pretty decadent. So uh, now, I only went to certain components of the event. I went to this super, super posh reception on Friday night, seafood towers for days, uh, Moet, McCollin, you name it. And then during the day on Saturday, there was truffle hunting trips and uh, symposiums with wine and uh, chats with the chefs. I didn't participate in any of that, but I was there for the dinner. So it was an 11 course meal. Each chef made a different course. All the wines that I talked about were poured. Uh, it was a who's who's event of who was there. And I'm not going to name who because it's against Four Seasons uh, 
etiquette to tell you. We don't, they don't like to tell, but uh, it was pretty snazzy. And if you are interested, and if you missed it this year, mark your calendar, because it's coming back. It's going to be an annual event, and it's only going to get bigger and better. Now, I did hear a lot of chatter about Chef Kelly Suarez. She's now at Gerard Street Kitchen. She's new to the D.C. region. And um, there's a real reason that we're hearing about her. So she is born Colombian, but has a real passion for Japanese cuisine and uh, has actually spent many of her formative cooking years in Japan. And she is executing such a terrific menu at Gerard's Deep Kitchen. And it, it really combines her love of Japanese cuisine with her Colombian roots. So if you have an opportunity to check that out, I highly advise it. Now, I'm going to be doing some travel soon. So we'll be talking about where I'm dining there soon. But I can go on for hours. Let's go on with the show to do. So Emmanuel LaRoche grew up savoring the best food and drink that France offers because he was born there. Uh, but he eventually came to America and got the nickname Champagne Charlie. And I feel like we should be best friends because I'm always drinking champagne when I'm not drinking my green tea. Uh, he has more than 20 years of experience in the food and beverage industry, both in Europe and in the US. Now, he has access to a variety of acclaimed people in the food industry. He has his personal podcast, Flavors Unknown, and recently he released his book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door. Now, this is a collection of conversations that he's had with award-winning chefs from various backgrounds and cultures, and they really share their personal experiences, and they also talk about sort of where food culture is today and why. So I'm really looking forward to talking to him. But first, uh, since I am at the gorgeous wine lair, I'm very excited because they have an amazing chef here who I'm going to move into the screen. Here we go. <laughs> so Chef Kinney, um is it Boo? Yes. Hi. Hi. It's so nice to meet you. So Chef has an amazing resume. And I'm going to let her brag about it. So, Chef, tell us about um, how you got into the food industry. Well, um, I'm actually one of seven, so I grew up cooking for my family mm -hmm. um, and then realized, hey, I want to do this for a career. <laughs> so uh, I'm born and raised in Virginia, and um, I dove into D.C. area, and the food scene was just amazing. Mm -hmm. um, one of my first gigs was actually working at Bourbon Steak for Michael Mina. Okay. Wait, <laughs> which chef were you working under? Um, Critchley? Yep, John, John Critchley. Yes. Mm -hmm. I remember John. Exactly. He did not leave well, but go ahead. <laughs> I know the story. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, and then I dove deeper and got to work for um, Eric Ziebold at Kinship Metier. I helped mm -hmm. open the place. Um, I worked there for two plus years and then um, got a chance to work at the French Laundry. Uh, and I did that for I mean, brag, brag, brag. <laughs> brag, brag, brag. Yes. Um, um, but now you're here at Wine Lair. What brought you here to work with Chef John Prince? So I came back uh, at the end of last year and I started private chefing. Um, and then my brother actually knows John because they used to work at Enox together mm -hmm. um, about almost 10 plus years ago. Pretty um, much. And <laughs> he told me, hey, um, there's an opportunity for a chef to kind of just have their own playground. Come, come cook here. Come do it. And I said, why not? Let's, let's build a kitchen. So. so what does that look like for you? Because you are cooking food for people who are members mm -hmm. of this wine club. Yeah. Um, actually, to be honest with you, I think it's one of the most exciting opportunities because it's my menu that I build and they can come and just explore it. And it is truly my playground that I'm building from the ground up. So, yeah. Very exciting. Yeah. Now, 
It is National Diabetes Month. It is. And yeah. you actually have type 1 diabetes. Type yeah. 1 diabetes. Yeah. Um, there are a lot <laughs> in the food community who have diabetes. Mm -hmm. What is it like for you? How, what is it that you'd like to share about your experience with diabetes while still being incredible chef and being surrounded by food and yeah. wine and all this, yeah. all the things that maybe diabetics shouldn't be surrounding themselves with. Right. Um, typically when people talk about diabetes, they always think type two, but type one is kind of, it's, I was basically born with it essentially. And I was always told, stay away from chocolate, stay away from sweets. But as time progresses, we see that you can just eat whatever you want, especially me being a very inquisitive person. I want to try everything I can. So, um, to be able to try different types of food, try different types of cuisine is necessary for my, for my job. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that's why I got into the industry so that I know how to take care of myself so that I know what to cook for myself or how to cook for myself properly. Mm -hmm. um, I've had it for 26 years um, and it's been an uphill battle, especially in different kitchens because I have to acclimate to it. But um, Well, how do you do that? I mean, mm -hmm. let's, if you don't mind going a little granular and being yeah. a little specific, what does that look like for you? It's tough because when you see chefs and cooks, you're on the line and there's no break to get away or get something but um right because the kitchen is on fire it right is, like it's dinner service <laughs> it's always on fire. there's no room for you to go into yeah. diabetic shock so what do exactly. you do um i'm lucky especially we're taking it back to kinship um which for me always feels like home because i love that place it really taught me how to cook again um when i told them hey i'm diabetic and i need stuff they're like do whatever you have to do keep skittles on your station like keep juice on your station and that's how i survived and that's how i taught myself how to survive okay every day in the kitchen and i think we should say that's eric Siebold. yeah he and his wife uh, celia yeah. they're amazing people yeah. it's a also yeah. a michelin star restaurant absolutely uh with good reason right <laughs> absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, and did you work upstairs at kinship or downstairs in Metier? so it's one kitchen for two restaurants okay oh my god so they were executing both yes i never realized yeah. that it's, it's, it's even harder <laughs> so do you have any um, recommendations for people who uh, maybe don't have type 1 diabetes, mm -hmm. maybe type 2? Like, where are your resources? Mm -hmm. You know, especially since we're talking about it now, it is the month. Right, exactly. What, any recommendations that you have? I know question. you're not an expert, but no. since you are afflicted, yeah. Yeah. what do you know? Um, one thing I do know, which is kind of disappointing, in the DMV area, there are not a lot of type 1 diabetic groups. Mm. Um, it's mostly found on, in, on the California side, on the West Coast. Um, but for me, uh, when I first was diagnosed, it was just, there, there wasn't a lot of knowledge. Now I have devices that help protect me and I know when my blood sugar is every five minutes. So if you can, make sure you reach out to your endocrinologist and ask them what the new technology is to survive. Because there is a lot of technology. There's so much. There's okay. so much out there. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank Jeff. Thanks for joining Thank me you today. For me. Thank you. Okay. Can yeah. you tell everybody where they can find you on Instagram? <laughs> Um, Kine.Izegbu, um, and I am now the executive chef of Wine Layer Excellent. here at the West End. It won't be your first time on. We'll see you soon. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much Chef. Okay, so as I said earlier in the show, I'm very excited to talk to my guest, uh, Emmanuel. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am very good, and thank you very much for having me as well on the show. I'm really Absolutely. excited to talk yeah, to so you. I'd love to know, I mean, I've read your bio and all that, and I don't want to bore people with me reading something. So I'd love to know a little bit about your background. I know you were born in France and you had a mom who loved food and helped raise your palate, but can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Sure. Yeah. So born in France, as you just said, um, you know, several years back. <laughs> and I grew up with in a family that loved food. Um, my mother, uh, obviously, uh, told me how to cook. Uh, I had an uncle that uh, owned a, a restaurant, a hotel, uh, you know, a region of France. Uh, so I, I was lucky to um, it's going to shock maybe some of the Americans here, but uh, to bartend, even if I, when I was a kid, but you know, it was France, it was a long time ago and it was my uncle. Uh, so, uh, so it was, uh, it was a great introduction to, um, to the industry, which in fact, um, of course, I was too young to be really interested in. Um, and, um, after that, I, I really started to focus on food, but more for my pleasure and cooking at home and, and, and traveling around the country. And I went for my job completely different direction. I, I had a master of organic chemistry and an MBA with a focus on marketing, but I was lucky to combine that scientific and I would say business background with my passion for food because I started working for a company that manufacture flavors for the food and the beverage industry. So um, I had the chance, still in Europe, to travel all around Western Europe from like Scandinavian countries to, um, you know, Spain and Italy through all the rest. Uh, and I tasted, Wait, you know, fantastic back, I'm food. so sorry, Emmanuel. No, back sure. up. When you say flavors, what does sure. that mean? Explain that. <laughs> yeah, so this is uh, like a space and an industry which is really not really known from, you know, people, but... Uh, it's kind of like behind the scene if you want. Um, but the every time that you buy, um, you know, a product uh, on the shelves or, um, you know, sometime as well from restaurant and food service, um, the flavor aspect uh, comes from a company that the same company type like I work for. So we are manufacturing flavors. We are extracting natural flavors from vanilla beans, for instance, from citrus, you know, from... Uh, other uh, sources and concentrating, um, you know, them and the food industry um, in, you know, that are manufacturing beverages or dairy product or ice cream or sausages or, uh, you know, ready meals and so on buy flavorings from a company like uh, the one I work for. You know, it, it seems like you said, your science mind fit in with your food passion. I think of like a company like Cuisine Solutions, mm -hmm. you know, the people behind sous vide cooking. Yes. Um, you know, that's all technology that right. again is, you know, now showing up in our kitchens. Yes, you know? absolutely. Yes, definitely. So, um, you know, to go back to my, uh, to let's say my background, then um, I had the chance uh, when I graduated, after I graduated from my MBA to spend a year in uh, the United States. And I discover the pace of the business in the United States. And it really fits my, you know, who, my, my mindset and, uh, and personality. So I always had back of my mind that I would like to come back. And obviously, you know, I had only um, uh, a visa for a year. Uh, so I started working in uh, in Western Europe, and then I had the chance in 2002, um, the company I worked for, in fact, offered me the to transfer to the U.S., and I was supposed to stay only six years, and it's been 20. So I I really loved um, you know love the the business here, and uh, and I discovered the whole culinary scene in the U.S., and um, I. You know, you use that passion to start my podcast in 2018 called uh, Flavors Unknown. 
But before you started podcasting, you were doing work with Star Chefs, right? Yes, correct. So that is, in fact, in uh, the space of like my job being in charge of uh, marketing for this, um, you know, flavor company. Um, I always look for interesting partnerships that can uh, bring uh, different value, added value, you know, to our customers. And uh, uh, the idea of connecting with uh, awarded and acclaimed chefs, petri chef mixologists from around country, uh, in fact, offer a source of inspiration for people working in the food industry. So um, that's how I developed like the the, part the 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 partnership with Star Chefs, and I got in contact with a lot of chefs and pastry chefs and mixologists from around the U.S. And um, I had the chance to moderate uh, panel discussions during you know some of the events that we were doing with uh, with them, and this is how I started, um, in fact, my personal podcast after that. And once you started sort of creating your Rolodex, because now it wasn't just sales, now these are relationships. Sure, and yeah. And you did your podcast. What is it about Flavors Unknown? What What are you trying to, you know, offer in that podcast? Yeah, so in, in those, uh, you know, first um, panel discussion that I had for, you know, the flavor company I work for, um, we were always focusing on the aspect of, you know, taste and, and flavors. And I was always kind of frustrating at the end of those conversations because I wanted to continue the dialogues, you know, with those culinary leaders. And uh, with my podcast, Flavors Unknown, it was this idea of trying to understand, you know, how their cultural background influenced the creative process. And what kind of creative process do they have? What inspire them? You know, um, how do they uh, create a new dish or create like a new drink? Um, and then, you know, is it like a, uh, an effort that they are doing, you know, on their own or is it a collaboration, you know, efforts when uh, they, they are doing this uh, act of, uh, you know, creation? So that's the type of uh, topics that I focus on with other, you know, uh, subjects, but that's the, the main one. Um, where I focus my um, my podcast on. And then when you started doing your book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, mm -hmm. let's talk about, I mean, what, were, what was like the mission statement of that book? And then given your vast Rolodex of chefs that you know and have relationships with, how did you winnow it down? Like whose stories were you like, oh, I got to tell this story. How did you figure that out? Yeah. So the, the, the whole story of starting creating the book uh, happened just before the pandemic. So I had probably like a bit more than three seasons in, uh, in the podcast. Um, and um, for me, it was really this idea that I have access to a great content, very rich content, you know, from the discussion I had uh, with uh, those individuals on the podcast. And I was trying to look at what are like the common threads that I can identify and what I wanted is, in fact, to bring more people to the podcast because, as you know, you know, some people listen to one, two, three episodes because they knew the guests uh, or because, you know, the guest is from like a, a cities that they live in. And um, but that's it. So I said there's so much content that could be very useful for other cooks or other chefs and as well other, um, you know, food enthusiasts that. Let's try to put that together in a compelling, you know, story, and not only um, having like the reushing like the the content of the podcast, but adding 
private conversation that I had with those individuals and as well my experience, you know, um, tasting food around the country because I, I do about probably like 60 tasting a year around the country. Mm-hmm. So are you a secret judge and you're not telling us? Is that what you're saying? No, no, not, no, not a secret judge. <laughs> That's a good one, though. <laughs> <laughs> I can't be the first one to say it. Come on. <laughs> no, no, not at all. But, you know, going back to your question about, you know, the mission statement of the book is, um, I think it starts from the discussion that I have always with my family and friends in France. Um not not too long ago, even I, I came back after you know, to France, uh, you know, over the summer after two years of uh, you know the break and because of the pandemic. But I still met people in Burgundy. So I was not in Paris, but in Burgundy, people that I haven't met before, some new neighbors of my family. And my sister was explaining to them that I had the podcast and I was reading the book here in the U.S. And they were kind of like shocked and they were. Like, why are you doing this? Because in the U.S., all they eat is pizza, burgers, and hot dogs. And I'm like, come on, give me a break. Yeah, and we're in 2022. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I I always like the questions about, um, you know, what is like the culture of food in, in the U.S.? And when I came 20 years ago, I didn't have maybe... Uh, the, the the content, the culture, the experience, how to answer. Because every time we're saying, I was mentioning a restaurant and then my family said, oh yeah, but you know, it's Italian background or oh, it's Chinese background or oh, it's Japanese background. It's not really American. So now I can tell them that, you know, the, the whole story of uh, the, the culture of the food in America is definitely linked to uh, the, the history of immigration. And yes, there's a lot of uh, influences that come from different parts of the world and being, you know, put together, uh, you know, here in the U.S. Well, so. let's talk about immigration and the chef, you know, or immigrants, you know, who make mm-hmm. up a uh, large, uh, you're an immigrant yourself. I mean, a large yeah, yeah. class of those in the food industry. Uh, Michel Richard, you know, RIP, uh, was a great French chef mm-hmm. here. Yes. Uh, Jean-Louis. Paladin as well. Um, those two, uh, Roberto Dona is Italian. I mean, they were the, there was mm-hmm. a bunch of them, you know, uh, who were the foundation that DC now stands on top of uh, for the food city that it is today. So is that part of your exploration, sort of the layers that bring the food culture to where it is today? Yeah. In fact, um, yeah, it started with um, obviously this influence from um, you know, the, the, the chef culture uh, from France. Um, a lot of the chefs even here in the U.S. were, you know, in the, like thinking about like the 80s and, you know, were trained by French chefs. Um, so there was all this, this influence. But nowadays, in fact, you see influences coming from, you know, from uh, Philippines, you know, coming from Mexico, coming from Peru, coming from other parts of the world. And you have fantastic chefs, um, it had been acclaimed by either James Beard or by star chefs that are either, you know, first generation. I was thinking, I was thinking Michelin, just so you know. <laughs> I'm sorry? I was, when I called you out as a judge, I wasn't thinking James Beard. I was thinking Michelin, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but, if you're uh, like that, you know, like that's a, that's yeah, a exactly. Maybe, uh, maybe I should call them after our I discussion. Think you I think you I have their number. I can get you in touch. Okay. Uh, but yeah. so I agree with you 
I mean, listen, I grew up outside New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, I was fortunate that I got to travel a lot when I was young and yeah. they still do. But, um, you know, to me, New York City was this mecca of cuisine and offerings. You could go into New York City in the 80s and the 90s and really eat any cuisine from any culture from around the world. And mm -hmm. even see, while DC didn't have the breadth and depth of restaurants that it has today, you, because of the diplomats here, because of the embassies here, Correct. you know, you could find cuisine from, you know, anywhere from Afghanistan or, I mean, there's so many Ethiopian restaurants here. I mean, back in the eighties, that was like, Ooh, exotic. And now it's, sure. now it's, you want Ethiopian tonight? Like, what do you feel like having tonight? Do yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. It's really different. Um, Absolutely. And I think it was it was important, uh, you know, for me. And that's why, the, you know, I have like the whole chapter in the book that I've uh, called the mosaic of culture, uh, which is really based on uh, a conversation that I had with at least 15 or 20, you know, chefs um, that are either first or second generation, you know, American. So um, I, I think there's, you know, when people are going to uh, read this chapter, they are going to probably discover some interesting stuff. Well, I, I love, to me, what I love when I talk about uh, the hospitality industry is the history and how it keeps building, mm -hmm. you know, how what happened 30 years ago ref still has a thread and is reflective today. And um, I love following that kind of thread to see how it evolves and changes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, when you were deciding again um, about whether it was for that chapter or some of your other chapters, who who are some of the stories that you really wanted to tell? Um, so, you know, in fact, it it was really based on first of the structure of the book, and then I had so different chapter focusing on different um, you know major topic, and so the the first one is about how to become a successful chef. The second one is about, um, you know, how, how to have access to quality ingredients and, and so on and so forth. So when I decided those topic, then I went into, okay, which story do I want to tell? Which chef that I talked to that resonate the most with, you know, a certain aspect of, um, you know, of, of the book. Um, but, you know, when it comes to, um, so there's a lot of stories. It's very difficult for me to pick, uh, but because I have 50 plus chefs, you know, featuring the book, um, but there's some interesting things. So one come to mind, you know, at the moment is uh, when we talk about the sources of inspiration is the conversation that I have with, um, um, of course, Blank now, uh, with Fiore Tedesco from uh, Austin, so from his restaurant Locadoro. And uh, he's talking about, um, you know, something really different from the inspiration from other chefs. He's talking about him taking a shower and then suddenly having in his mind, you know, he's singing like the, the song from uh, Neil Young, Neil Young, uh, like uh, on the beach. And uh, then, you know, at that time, some image come in his brain of like a beach that he went to when he was a kid. Um, and he see like the cliffs and he see like the sands and the waves and, you know, and so on. And then suddenly he working with associations with, you know, uh, uh, scallops and, you know, uh, uh, seaweeds and different. And then in his mind, he's building this dish. And, you know, after 
you know, being done with his shower, he started like writing like the recipe. And he thought that it was so interesting that that night he wrote the whole series of recipe based on an entire album from Neil Young. And that was like his first, um, you know, dinner connected to like a music piece. And in fact, he started to create additional uh, tasting menus with other artists that, you know, he was in love with. So uh, so that's for me, like a story that I wanted to, uh, you know, to write in a book when it comes to sources of inspiration. Well, that is, um, it's so unique. It's a unique story. I don't think you hear that. No, exactly. I mean, you hear a lot of like people inspired by painting, by colors, looking through cookbooks, um, you know, walking in nature. You know, yes, we have a lot of those stories, but that one was really unique. That is really unique. Well, so you, you talk about like the book is really for people who love the industry, obviously, but you know, foodies, culinary students, cooks and chefs, you sort of like divvy us all so how do you like what is it in there for like the diehards you know like I, I always talk about the foodies because I used to be one right like before I was in the industry I loved this industry and I would dine out and I would cook at home and do all these things but I didn't have my feet in the industry you know I, I but I was a lover of it. But, you know, I think there's a, I do say this a lot, I think there is a misconception in the hospitality industry that foodies understand the business of the hospitality industry. They don't. They don't understand it. And they don't have to. They're not in it. They don't have to. But I do feel like it's a big problem. So what are some of the things that are in the book that you think for, for the diehards that they'll really enjoy, other than, like, the great story about how that menu was put together? Yeah, I, I think that's, um, you know, for everyone who is passionate about food, um, like you are myself as well, is, um, you know, we always emotionally connected with like, a, you know, a menu that you read, like, a, or food, um, a rest, like a dish or like a drink that we like. And I think that the people are going to enjoy learning about like the journey of and the story of the chef that prepared, you know, those products. Um, Another aspect as well is, you know, about um, looking at connecting the quality of the ingredients that you are um, sourcing to the quality and the experience of the dish of the drink that you are going to prepare, the chefs are preparing. So it, in the book, it is one of the chapter I talk about um, what I learned from the chef on how to you know, access quality ingredients, building relationship with, you know, your farmers at the farmer's market, finding inspiration when you are traveling. Um, I have like a, in a, one of the chapter, um, kind of a 20 points on organizing your own tasting tour when you are traveling and bringing, you know, ingredients and product back, you know, for your own, you know, benefits and, and experience. It's not always easy to do. You know, they'll stuff you sometimes with product. I mean, I have yeah. like, I have like mustard that they would not let me bring in. So, you know. <laughs> I, know I know very well. I know very well. Um, I don't want to uh, say anything because I don't know who is going to listen to your podcast. But but there is, um, I, in fact, I've been lucky so far is to, uh, and has always been very honest to uh, declare when, uh, you know, they ask me when I travel back, do you have anything? I said, yeah, you know what? I come back from France. So I have chocolate, I have wine, you know, I have this, I have that. And it was like, okay, 
enjoy. So I was lucky. Could we talk about your 20 points a bit? Because I do think for a lot of people when they travel, um, defining their travel itinerary that incorporates not just good eating, but getting a better understanding of the cuisine culture there is important for a lot of people. So while it's great to go to a big name restaurant or maybe go eat in a Nona's around the corner, um, how do you help, how do you recommend people sort of do their homework without being overwhelmed? Because as you know, there's so much content out there and everybody's telling you, no, you gotta eat here. Or, oh, you gotta go meet this person. Or, you gotta go do that. What's the, what's your recommendation on that? Um, I have to say that, yes, it takes a little bit of time. I mean, if you are passionate, you know, about the topic, you will take the time. Um, I know I always annoyed my kids, you know, when we go on a trip, because I spend probably more time searching, you know, for information because I'm kind of a you know, I don't have the fear of missing out, you know, even if I'm not a millennial or a Gen Z, you know, I, have you have this, I understand. I, exactly. So the idea is that I, I really spend the time to, um, you know, search like, um, you know, different sites and uh, I am organizing, you know, things on, uh, on my phone and I have, you know, I have list of the restaurant that I want to go to. I have the list of like the, the coffee roasters that I'm going to go to in the morning. I have the list of the special bakery. All of this is prepared before, you know, I go there. Um, um, I have as well reached out maybe to chef that I know in the network that, um, you know, I've been to, um, you know, those places and they are going to give me some tips, you know, on, on you know, where, where to focus on. So I know the people I have like a whole methods that I I detail you know on uh, on my um, on my book and uh, and the people can really look at it. Um, obviously, yes, there's um, there's um, some work you know uh, to be done <laughs> in order to prepare that. But I, I I I really want to do this if I go somewhere because I don't want to go back and someone would tell me, hey, have you tried this? And I'm like, damn. No, and now you know I missed the opportunity. So, right, so that's why that. I'm putting the effort first. So yes, a little bit of efforts. Or otherwise, you know, if they if um, they want the easy way, they can contact me or they can contact you. You know, I'm sure that you know a lot of places that I like I do, and uh, I will be um, you know happy to um, you know to give them some uh, some uh, recommendations. In fact, that's I I think there's not a day that goes by without me sending a recommendation to someone, you know, contacting me to say, Hey, I'm going, I'm going to New Orleans, you know, uh, in two weekends, do you have any recommendation? Oh, I'm going to, um, you know, Portland in Oregon. So do you know any place anywhere to go? Well, I was going to follow that up with, I do believe that asking those in the know, I mean, I love when people ask me my opinion, so I'm happy to, share it. And, you know, if I'm traveling, I always ask, I think if I'm going to Italy and if I'm going to a specific region or I'm going to France or I'm going to wherever, I talk to the people from that area, you know, and I say, what do you know? I mean, most people are delighted to share, you know, their heritage and their country and their, their passions. So I think that's very good. So I wanted to go back to the book a little bit. Um, Talk about identifying seven common paths when it comes to creative process for chefs. 
How, how did you identify them and work through them? And can you talk me talk me through it a little bit? Sure. Um, so that was kind of a haha moment for me because, um, as I mentioned to you, in all of those podcasts, I talked to the chef, you know, about their creative process, and very often they tell me that they don't really have one. That you know, they start with the um you know with um the produce um and then after that you know the inspiration comes and then the techniques you know are going to apply to um you know to um you know the 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 product so it, it's really like the idea i think the best summary in terms of the process has been given to me by chef sean brock um and it, it talks about the pie theory which is product idea and execution so the product is produced first, then the inspiration, then, you know, the techniques. Um, but it, it was interesting when I was going through my notes and uh, the recording is suddenly I could see, you know, some commonalities in terms of the process. And yes, I, I summarize it into like, um, you know, seven. Um, and, and they are, you know, in the book. So um, I don't know if you are editing, but if you are not, you have to um, people because I don't remember not by heart. Well, that's um, what happens if you pick out one or two. Yeah, yeah. So they are, um, you know, there's like one is about like um, um, elevate. You know, that's one of the the process. So the the element is, you know, if they have like a recipe, for instance, they are going to. Um, look at foreign ingredients that is maybe a bit more noble or, you know, they are going to search for something that is really unique and they are going to elevate the recipe by, you know, focusing on the specific ingredients, you know, that um, it could be like a, a different variety or it could be uh, suddenly they are going to use caviar, you know, for instance, in, uh, you know, in, in that recipe. So that's what's elements, which is one aspect, which is elevate. Um, another one, which is very common for chefs, that one, they, they always talk about it, even if they don't use the word, but, uh, this is in fact, the, um, you know, when they substitute because it's really connected to the seasonality, um, you know, aspect of the industry and chef will have like a, a recipe structure and then they will, they are going from one season to another. They are going to substitute one specific ingredient. So maybe, you know, maybe it's a pork, you know, uh, chopped with, I want to say peach, you know, in the summer. And then suddenly maybe it's going to come like squash or, and then maybe like it's apple. going to become like apple, you know, and so on. So it's this, exi this exercise of like substitution, you know. So it's like two, two examples of, uh, you know, of um, how chefs are, um, you know, looking at the creative process. Right. Well, so I, I, we're going to have to wrap up in a couple seconds, but I'm sort of curious, you know, um, what would you say about the book? Like what's, what, what's most helpful for like both the amateur and the chef? Like there's, it's so chock full of information and you interview so many people and you sort of take stories that really, I mean, I, it's amazing, but what would you say like for the amateur and for the chef that they could both walk away with? Yeah, I mean, for the amateur, as I mentioned before, I mean, it's really about like the, the story. If you, if you are passionate about that food and if you like the space of chefs, 
then you are going to know more about like the journey they are taking to create, you know, a dish or drinks and 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 the story behind, you know, those things. So that's for me the uh, like really and the, and the idea as well that, you know, you don't have to follow a recipe um, and uh, that you can uh, be free, you know, in the kitchen to experiment. Well, that is kind of where I wanted to go because I think the amateur even. They don't trust themselves all the time when they're in the kitchen, right? If they haven't had Correct. training, um, you know, I have friends who who are they're nervous cookers. They they they're in the kitchen, they love it, but they're nervous. And I'm always like, if it doesn't come out good, you throw it away. Like exactly, that's not a big deal, you know. <laughs> it's not a big deal, but but I think like in the book, they are going to understand that what the chef wants to achieve is the same thing that you want to achieve, you know, in the kitchen. It's the balance of flavors. And the balance of flavors, you're going to have it by playing, by with using different elements that are, or the flavors that are in foul, the basic taste that are, you know, like the acidity, the sweetness, you know, the saltiness and, and so on, bitterness and blah, 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 and umami. So then, you know, you are going to learn that there is different way to bring acidity you know it does it could be you know through citrus but it could be as well through vinegar so it could be through you know other ingredients and you can be free in the kitchen to experiment and you can switch those things you can replace it uh you know that i think this is like the 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 main learning is like don't you know be shy and and don't fear you know the, um, that you have to 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 follow a, a recipe to uh, the tea is in fact you can you know anyhow the recipe the recipe have been given as a guideline especially for the home cooks because depending on where you live you know you are going to have access to different you know varieties or like the the maturity of the fruits or the veggies you know are going to be different um, so you have to adapt in, in fact those those recipes so. That's what the amateur is going to, um, you know, to learn reading the book. I would say for the people that are more professional. So if you are like a young cook, I think there's some interesting learnings uh, that could apply it as well for any type of industry. But the idea is that uh, for me, it was interesting to learn uh, from those culinary leaders that, uh, you know, they, they, they are really advising from those young people to define short and long-term goals very early on and, and follow those goals um, and, and find you know, people within the industry to become their mentor. Um, that is like key in order for someone who is young that wants to you know, find a place you know, in, in this industry. And then for the people that are already a little bit more established, I think that the book is going to be interesting because they are going to learn what the others, you know, are doing. So people well, that, I think, you know, I think for the that, more established chef, what's important, and I, you probably know this better than anybody, for the established chef is staying there, staying relevant. Talk about elevating. Like you, the young ones are coming, they're nipping at your heels. So, you know, you want to be a part of it which means you have to evolve in order to keep your offerings fresh. I mean, obviously there are things that need to stay on the menu because nobody's going to let it go or whatever, but the rest of it has to engage and has to stay fresh always. Sure. Absolutely. 
Yeah. And 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 you know, and some people that are taking over, you know, some some uh, you know established restaurants where there is already a clientele, and uh, you know, there's a story in that in the book from one of the chefs, you know, from Asheville, um, talking about you know that challenge and the fact that he wanted to redynamize and modernize the menu, and he had to backtrack because you know some of the 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 locals you know were used to certain dishes and yes he spent the time to elevate them and change them but still to keep them you know in the menu because that was something very important in order to make sure that the locals you know will come back because they are the one that pay the bill at the end of the day right exactly well you <laughs> it's called uh tushies and seats right you have to uh -huh. keep there. I mean, well, your book, um, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, is such a it's is for such a broad audience because it is for the food lover, um, but also for those who are actually work in the industry. So I just I I love it, and it I really appreciate you taking the time with me today to talk about it and your podcast, Flavors Unknown. Um, Emmanuel, can you tell um, everybody where they can find you either online or on Instagram? Sure. So, um, I mean, uh, so they can, uh, via email, they can connect me with uh, like at uh, contact at flavorsunknown.com uh, and on Instagram or um, Facebook, it's at flavorsunknown. So that's uh, very, um, you know, very easy. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I thank you very it. much for having me as well. I really appreciate it. Well, that was a terrific show, and I want to thank all of you for joining me today. I am in the beautiful wine lair. It is a private wine club, but they do events and tastings. So you do want to check out the list or you want it.com because I do list all of it there. Of course, you want to follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Twitter for now. Uh, you want to tune in every Sunday to 1500 to hear me and David on Foodie and the Beast, the DC area's only food, wine, and hospitality radio. Uh, and I want to thank you all for joining me today. You need to check out Emmanuel's book, of course. And uh, I want to remind you that when you dine out, uh, and there's so much delicious dining to do, to please remember to take your kindness pills. There are staffing shortages. It is real. There is supply issues, also real. No restaurant wants you to have a bad time. They want you to come in and they want you to come back. So just deep breath out there. Everybody take a deep breath. Again, uh, thanks for joining me, Nikki Nellis, on Industry Night. Have a delicious week. Produced by HeartCast Media.